0: Hello, and welcome to the first and possibly only ever episode of Capriel's unnamed policy podcast. Today I'm talking to Ken Sandblast, who is a land use planner at Westlake Consultants Inc. in Tigard, Oregon. We're talking about Oregon's affordable housing policy, namely uh, Metro's 2040 plan, how that's evolved over the years, as well as Oregon's 2019 um, House Bill 2021 which um, made some serious reforms to single family zoning throughout the state. So please welcome Ken.
1: Uh, Hello, my name is Ken Sandblast. Uh, I'm a land use planner and I have been since uh, about 1995. Uh, I am a member of the American Planning Association, also American Institute of certified planners since about uh, 1997 or the year 2000. And my practice is close to 30 years now in the entitlements of land use. So I'm dealing on a day-to-day basis with uh, what uh, development occurs on property. I've worked throughout the Pacific Northwest, uh, but primarily my focus is a metropolitan area of All
0: right. And so you've worked in Oregon, Washington. Okay. Yes. And uh, where did you go to school?
1: I went to school at Oregon State as a mathematics major of all things and then um, went back and took some classes at Portland State in the urban studies program with the idea of becoming a master's of urban planning and uh, took about two years worth of that and then decided that my clientele and my profession didn't necessarily need that because I saw that that was more if one wanted to get into let's just say urban design or master plans or Um, kind of broad scale community planning. And that was not where my interests lie. So I, um, I have been a practicing planner since then.
0: All right, go Beavs. Um, No question. And I know that you work on really all kinds of projects. um, But what do you work on the most? And especially what in the state of Oregon do you work on the most?
1: A very diverse base of projects, as you note, so we're doing anything, I mean, currently we're doing 265 unit apartments, we're doing a Sikh temple, Um, we're doing a hospital, Um, we're doing countless uh, subdivisions and land divisions, um, conditional use permits for quarries, so it's a diverse uh, book of work, and it has been for a number of years, but I would say 66% of it is involved with land dividing and development of property.
0: And something very unique about the Portland area is that um, we have metro, which is a government structure that exists above the city level and below the state level. Um, It's kind of comparable to New York City being, the city government being metro, and then the actual cities beneath it being more like boroughs, cities or counties. And so, obviously, you have to work with or, you know, access information from governmental entities. Um, What is, like, unique or challenging about having Metro as an additional, uh, you know, actor in that arena?
1: It's an interesting question because, uh, believe it or not, that was one of the reasons that I got inspired to become Uh, involved with land use planning. Uh, When I got out of college, I worked for a a firm that was a very small firm that did some real estate government. So it's above the counties and cities and below the state. And as that was occurring in the early nineties, when I got into town, um, Metro was coming up with what is now known as the 2040 plan. And they spent a good number of years um, and I spent a good number of meetings because of the job that I had going down and watching this plan formulate. And it has now become a life's work, so to speak, because I've understood how and why it came about and what it is. And I've been able to, um, I I would say, be a more effective planner because I've understood what that is. And so what, in a nutshell, what that level of government does here is, is that um, for those of us that are familiar with a comprehensive plan or a zoning code, Metro basically has their own versions of that. So it becomes a regional comprehensive plan um, called the Regional um, Urban Growth Management Plan, or regional, RUGAs, Regional Urban Growth and Goals. And then they have a zoning code, basically, that's called the Functional Plan. And so they have their own, they have their own documents. And then the local governments, uh, the 24 cities and three counties in the metropolitan area, of course, Metro has a boundary around it, comply. Uh, just like they are required to show that they comply with the statewide system, They also have to show that they comply with the regional system. Um, And so that's another, it truly is another whole level of government. And what Metro really is responsible for currently is transportation dollars from the federal government in the Metro area, Um, then the regional planning, uh, which really is about the the 2040 plan. And we may talk more about that, but, um, and then they do solid waste and they manage regional uh, facilities like the zoo and some uh, cemeteries and regional greens uh, green spaces and open spaces.
0: So um, with Metro zoning guidelines, um, and I'm not sure exactly when they were first instated, but um, Metro does currently have an inclusionary zoning slash affordable housing um, element, being that uh, developments have to reserve certain amount of units for, a percentage of the area's median median income um usually being you know 60% 80% sometimes 120% um and so like i said i'm not exactly sure when that was instated mm-hmm. um and i'm pretty sure it's also uh, changed during its lifetime but it um how has that um impacted your day-to-day job, kind of what kind of trends have you seen coming out of that?
1: The 2040 functional plan, which was the kind of the implementation of the zoning code, it currently has 14 different titles in it, and each one of those titles covers a different topic. So one of those is residential neighborhoods, and they're called um, outer neighborhoods, and they didn't have originally a component in it for anything to do with affordable at the level of definition that you were describing with the 80 to and that, of course, that whole issue has come to the forefront in the last couple of years. It's more so at the forefront now than I've ever seen it. Um, I've worked with Habitat for Humanity for the last probably six, eight years, um, did a little bit with them before that, um, but um, the biggest expression we've seen at the regional level is a couple of years ago, the voters approved a $600 million bond uh, for housing, affordable housing, and that really, um, kickstarted, if you will, the whole regional level of affordable housing. It created a a kind of an oversight committee of uh, Blue Ribbon Committee of people. Um, And then it really energized not just the regional government level to look at that program and affordability with the kind of definition you're talking about, but it also energized the county county housing authorities. It energized the city of Portland because they're the biggest kid on the block with regards to their affordable housing. The city, as I'm sure you know, the city of Portland itself is the one that really instituted the, the more regulatory inclusionary zoning a couple of years ago. Uh, and so how does that affect my day-to-day? Um, it it I haven't seen it right down on the ground in most of the cities yet. So what we're seeing is um, more this middle housing, and I think we'll talk about that in a minute. But the we haven't seen a whole bunch of real restrict, not restricted, but regulated inclusionary zoning. Um, That has really come from Portland. And so now we're at a stage where, again, we have a bunch of socioeconomic factors that are involved with regards to affordable housing, but we also now have what it will appear to be, to me anyway, um, this kind of first wave of projects that are going to have to be compliant with that. And it will it'll affect a change, there's no question. Um, but the the marketplace has not, um, from what I've seen, it hasn't thoroughly embraced it because um, it's, it's difficult to take 20% of the units in the case of the city of Portland and say that it has restrictions on it because whether you're dividing property or you're building multifamily, that 20% of the whatever you're doing, the, the total uh, units, that's really the part where the, if there is going to be any economic compensation for doing all this, that's the factor. And so when the, particularly in the city of Portland, when they stepped in to regulate that, it caused a a ripple effect because they were messing with the 20%, which is really the part that's, after everything else is paid for, that's the part where you actually see some sort of economic return.
0: So speaking of missing middle, something that inclusionary zoning doesn't do, well, what it does do is uh, increase the supply of affordable units, mostly, you know, apartments, townhouses, but it doesn't tell you, it doesn't give any additional rules as to where you can put those units. So in 2019, um, Oregon's uh, House and Senate passed um, a bill essentially banning single-family zoning in uh, towns with a population above 10,000, um, towns with a population above uh, 25,000 uh, could now, can now um, put up to four units on a previously single, uh, single family zoned uh, lot. Towns uh, between 10 and 25,000 can do a, a duplex on a single family zoned lot. Um, and then in a classic California copycat style, um, California this past year, also passed a statewide um, legislative item uh, which had no uh, minimum city population restriction. So they are trying to claim the title of first state to ban single-family zoning. I don't think that's correct. You know, no offense to uh, Joseph Oregon, but they're not exactly hurting for uh, duplexes. Anyways, so that-
1: Nor, Nor would they embrace a large supply of those.
0: Correct. Um, so that, this policy in Oregon, I believe takes effect in June of this year or was it June? Yeah, okay. It's so the it end happened.
1: of June it's the end of June otherwise if, if a local government that's under the uh, under those populations that you noted, if they don't have it effective, then there is a model code that has mm-hmm. been adopted at the state level and the statewide system will take effect in those communities that don't have their local adoption.
0: All right. So yeah, so local um, city and, and town governments can set their their own laws, but if they don't comply or do better than the state level, then the state takes over.
1: Correct. And so I think uh, that's kind of a backstop. Um, but what we've seen, what I'm seeing happen is, is that at least again in the tri-county area and the multi-metro area, you're seeing all the governments move towards compliance. So I would they track it all at the state level you can get a spreadsheet that says which ones have adopted and which ones haven't across the state of course because it's not just the metro area that's effective um, but the so they are all moving in that direction there are a couple of cities i think two that come to mind that are asking for an infrastructure consideration there's a there's a kind of an off-ramp in the law that says that if you make your case As a local government that your infrastructure isn't designed or has the capacity there's a there's a way that you can make a case and ask for a deferral um there's one or two cities that are doing that but as with this whole entire senate bill 2001 this is a brand new law and it's all breaking new ground and um so it's it's a it's i've seen this happen in oregon in my career i saw it happen with measure seven and measure 49 marijuana legalization and growing in oregon where These are social changes that ripple right into land use, and there's a period of time, and we're in it now for Senate Bill 2001, in my opinion, where it's all being made up. Uh, People are trying to figure out how this is going to work, and the state is making it up the best they can because the legislature handed them a law, but then they hand it down, and now it's down to the local level, and that, again, is much more where I spend my time, right, because I have to go out and... um, assist people to property owners and business owners to get something done. And um, so it's going to be quite a ride here for a year or two while everybody figures out how all this works. Um, I would also just add um, my understanding of this is that it's not necessarily a ban on single-family residential. Some have characterized it as a ban. I just don't read it like that. I read it as more just expanding the palette of uses and types of housing that can go in areas that have been exclusively one kind of use. Um, And so, uh, what's yet to be seen, and again, we may talk about this a little bit more, so I'll be quick about it, but what's yet to be seen is. after you've done this uh, social goal and got this law in place and put it through the filter of the local politics and the local communities and all of the factors that are come into play of adopting regulations and then the implementation of it right down on the ground, uh, what's yet to be seen is if it's really going to result in the kind of goal that was laid out in the law, because we're seeing, I'm already seeing, of course, it's such a big issue that I'm tracking it pretty close, just seeing how different communities are implementing it and um there is uh, one of the articles that you gave me the viewpoint one it references in there at one section about the fact of um, dimensional standards and parking requirements and setbacks and landscaping and open space and lot coverage and all those things a project just a couple of weeks ago where i have a long-term client and he was looking at a project and by the time i had read what the proposed draft was it it I've concluded that it'll take a case study on almost each project to try to figure out how all of this works because it isn't just as simple as, well, it used to be a 10,000 square foot lot size and as long as you have 10,000 square feet, you can do four more units. Uh, you know That's how some are characterizing it, but that's not what it's gonna come out of the sausage making as. It's gonna come out with, if you do more than a duplex, you have to do these 10 things. And before you know it, you could need 20,000 square feet and so it's just going to be a different um, result, because that's what I've seen happen when things like this come along. I mean, it's democracy, so we've got a lot of activity going on and lots of interests. And frankly, we're going to end up with some unintended consequences because there's just too many moving parts. So um, I, there, I'm off my soapbox. I'm not sure I answered your question, but that—that's kind of just—it's just very interesting. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I like the profession because. I mean, it's at the intersection of all of those different things. And I just find that fascinating.
0: So because um, so much of the kind of implementation depends on like, you know, local requirements that uh, fall outside of the, you know, exact lot size, like, you know, uh, parking setbacks, etc. cetera. Do you think that like if to make this... more more effective, more statewide? Do you think that um, like the Senate should have been um, more prescriptive in in its writing, in its composition of it?
1: Uh, I would say that's a good question. I mean, I spent nine years volunteering at the planning commission level and chaired the commission three or four different times. And so Um, I like to say I work with government, not for government, but I've seen it from those angles. Um, I've been involved as a volunteer creating community plans, chairing committees of 25 people. And so that idea of the legislative process, it has its limits, right? And so um, it's hard enough, I think. I mean, I've never been elected to anything, but I mean, just watching it and being aware of it to try to get the attention of the Senate of Oregon to just get land use up on their radar screen, let alone to go to the level where they would look at regulating. Um, it takes it takes time just to get an issue right. You know, it might take three, four, five legislative sessions. It would be extraordinary if they were able to do that. Um, but for them to go through this, and, and frankly, that's one of my concerns or fears or whatever conjectures is, because they didn't go at it with that kind of forethought the implementation of it is going to be all over the board. It's going to be, you know, the city of Portland's going to do it one way, and of course they'll have commonality. But the, the getting eighty-five percent of it the same isn't really the issue. It's the final ten or fifteen percent that becomes the functionality on a day-to-day basis, and that part is yet to be seen. The drafts that we're seeing out there, at least the ones I'm seeing each one of those drafts of course as you would know represent what the community's interests are we represent how the community is trying to reach the compromises and the and the balancing of the law with the political realities of these individual communities and so again it I, I understand that and that's not really where i live but i live with the results of it because i'm trying to get things done and when i'm in a system um again I like all of that. I mean, I've liked it for a long time because it's, I mean, I just find the creativity and the problem solving of it fascinating, Um, but but it's complicated Um, and it's really, I spend a lot of time just educating people because it's hard. Um, It's, the system is, the system is very um, elaborate and it's very multifaceted. And so this is just adding something more to it. Um, and that's not something that eight out of 10 people want to talk about. They don't want to hear about it. They, I mean, I've had people already calling me saying, you know, hey, um, I'm going to buy this piece of property, and the owner is telling me that they used to be able to do four units, and now they can do 14 or 16, and therefore their land's worth $2 million more. And that's not exaggerating. That's happening, right? Well those that's the eight out of ten people that think it's just a simple thing that now that this has happened you know they hit the jackpot and that's just not how this system in Oregon particularly I mean lots of systems have statewide systems now but in Oregon it's it was captured a long time ago and so it is not something that it's just Wild West that all of a sudden so it's it's gonna take a couple of years <laughs> it's, it's not gonna have I mean, Yes, it's going to get adopted on June 30th, but it's going to take a while. I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling. I want to make sure I answer your question. So I think I'll just I'll just stop talking so much.
0: Um, so one of the, the largest arguments against allowing, and by large, I just mean uh, used a lot. I don't mean in strength. Um, one of the largest arguments against allowing, you know, duplexes, quaplexes, multiple units in Uh, single-family zones is driving down the uh, value of other single-family zones. Have you seen any of that? Do you think that'll happen? Do you think it's happening currently?
1: Uh, I would say that what we're seeing, what I've been seeing, and I'll just say for the last, let's just say 10 years, independent of anything to do with house Bill 2001 is just um, the Metro 2040 plan, in a nutshell, basically what it says is grow up and don't grow out. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of that going on. Um, and because of that, um, in fact, I've spent 25 years working on one of those. It's called a town center in my community, and um, you know, recreating this what we call now a great street. But it took 15 years to get that figured out. Now the community is redeveloping around that street. Well, it's drawing the single-family residential areas that are adjacent to it into those areas, right? The amenities that come, the conveniences that come, the multimodal transportation improvements in the area, into the area, in and out of the area. It creates a kind of a positive energy around it. And so whether that, I mean, that's not really the same as I think as your question, which is, allowing a duplex in the middle of a neighborhood of, of single family houses. A couple of those, I mean, I'm conjecturing like anybody else would, but a, a one or two of those mixed in is probably not gonna do much. It's when you would see you know, a whole block change or something like that. City of Portland for 20 years has allowed uh, duplexes on corner lots in single family neighborhoods. Uh, and they've allowed that as long as one house, one of the duplexes faces one street and the other duplex faces the other street, So you see those sprinkled through town, through city of Portland, Um, city of Wilsonville has an area where they put uh, mental health kind of uh, care homes mixed in with single family areas. It's really more. If it was there when people got there, right. If it's, it's really more, if people feel like it's just part of what their background neighborhood is and what they're comfortable with, it's the change. That's always getting people. It's just seeing something new and changing people and, I mean, changing their neighborhood. Um, there is directly an impact economically, but um, it's yet to be seen, I would say, if there's a direct linkage to middle housing. I mean, we're gonna see it because it's gonna happen. Um, it's just gonna be interesting. The also the other thing that I'm more interested in is just how predominant is that really gonna be, right? How, how much of that are you really gonna see? There's gonna be an initial flurry activity and then how much opportunity is there really to do that? Um, and so there'll be some, one-off lots here and there or a couple of empty lots or a rundown house in some place. But you need to have infrastructure for that and there's cost associated with putting all that in. So my jury's out on just how much of it we're actually gonna see.
0: Okay, I think this is my last question, but if another state calls you and said, hey, we want our own Senate Bill 2001, what elements would you make sure to include?
1: Wow, that's a good one. Um, I mean, if, 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 a, if a, at a state level, and I think that's probably where it needs to be to be effective is to be a state level. To do that, I would say one element would have to be, there would have to be a deadline to implement it uh, because I don't think that it would happen if you didn't do that. Um, two, you would wanna put in place um, some considerations of uh, key elements. I mean, one of the things that Oregon did was they adopted Senate bill 2001 and then it took the next legislative cycle to realize that they said, if this happened, if to Senate bill 2001 happened and people went in and put these units in, the, in these areas, they were creating a bunch of rentals because there was no way to divide them. And so then there was Senate bill 458 that got passed just last summer. And what it says now is that you can come in and, and divide property underneath and create units that are for sale and ownership uh, situations you'd want to see something like that be included because you would I mean again it depends upon the goal of the community or the state but I would think you'd want to have a home ownership be one of the main alternatives Uh, you need to pay attention to infrastructure Um, one of the things about this is is that trying to make it result in affordable homes and affordable units um, by burdening it with you're required to do parking and you're required to face your garages this way and you're required to do this, you're required to do that. And before you know it, uh, again, you're gobbling up more land to do that, plus you're increasing costs. And so uh, in Oregon, what we see is a lot of the cost that is goes into the home is not the greedy developer or the greedy home builder. It's the regulations and the time, the interest cost of carrying it so long So finding ways to uh, include those components and just get them recognized in there would be important.
0: Thank you so much to Ken for chatting with me today. And that is going to wrap up the first and possibly only ever edition of Kapril's policy podcast, Name to be Determined. I will see you next time, or maybe I won't.